0: It's not entirely back, but it's certainly back enough for us to have a conversation, which I've been really looking forward to. It's about a subject that can be somewhat taboo, that is a bit of a a problem for both the right and the left in different ways, I think. It's about boys and men, the male part of our (laughs) species, and the challenges that are dramatically reshaped society in the 21st century present particularly to men in a way that maybe we haven't been paying attention to enough. Larry Summers said this just the other day on Twitter and got completely piled on by the, all the usual suspects, but as usual, Larry Summers is onto something. And this book of boys and men is what we're going to discuss today. It's, it's by Richard Reeves. He is a senior fellow at Brookings, where he directs the Boys and Men Project. He's also been the director of Demos, the London-based political think tank, an advisor to Nick Clegg in the coalition government, and a Guardian journalist. The book is called Of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why it Matters, and What to Do About It. It's a, it's a great little book. I'm, I'm, I recommend it to you. It's not that long to read. It's, it's got some really sharp points, which I'm going to try and push a little bit today. But Richard, thank you so much for coming. I'm, I confess we're going to have another slight middle American accent. Yes. But tell me, Richard, how did you, tell me a little bit, how, where did you grow up and how did
1: you come to America and be who you are? Well, first of all, just a delight to be on, Andrew. Thank you. I'm a huge, huge fan. And I, I don't think anything I do associated with the book will make my wife prouder than this interview so job job done i Love to your wife i'm in your debt already
0: so maybe your son's less so i don't i don't <laughs> well, know they well, appear see. in your book a little bit and they're kind of fascinating i wanted to ask you a bit more about that but sure. but anyway go ahead yeah they,
1: and they're one of the reasons i wrote the book because you know i have raised three boys to adulthood in both the uk and the us that is you you observe i'm i'm from the uk moved to the us in 2012 after about as much time as i could survive in the cameron clegg Government, and I've essentially been at Brookings ever since. My wife's American, so we're an Anglo-American family. And the the journey, in short, has been one from growing up in Peterborough, which is a town which you'll probably know but now, north of London, which has a, a beautiful cathedral at its center and lots of industrial areas and agricultural areas all, all around it. And I went to a, a what we would call in the UK a comprehensive school, a big public high school there. And there are a few things I think in my childhood that That led me down the path of caring about inequality generally, but also gender, family, and so on too. I was thinking a bit about this recently, and when I think about the teachers that affected me, a lot of them were men, and a lot of the stuff they were doing was extracurricular. It wasn't the stuff in the classroom. So, you know, Mr. Duncan, the geography teacher, ran a sailing club. A sailing club. A comprehensive school in Peterborough, but it was quite successful and. Mr. Wyatt, my English teacher, and probably most importantly, Mr. Gordon, who, who ran a Latin class at lunchtime, bless him, which I didn't take to, but then a debating club, which I did take to, loved it. And a girl who was about two or three years older than me, Sarah Shake, was the second person from our school to go to either Oxford or Cambridge. And she'd just started at Oxford, and she called me up and said, you've got to come visit me. And I was like, why? And she said, just do it. So I got on the bus, went to Oxford and saw Sarah Shake. And I was my head was completely turned. I now realised you just saw more in me. I was a B student at best at that point, more in me than I saw. And I just set set upon getting into that place, which I did actually succeed in in doing. So I then became the third kid from our school to make it into to Oxbridge. And that led me into the sort of journalistic and political career. But meanwhile, I think my dad was in a important way having a huge influence on me he worked in manufacturing on the white collar side but i vividly remember in the 80s he lost a job and was unemployed for quite a while and he came to the breakfast table every morning wearing a tie shirt and tie and having shaved and i and i asked him once said dad all you're going to do is go into the dining table and bash out like cvs to try and get a job why are you shaving why are you doing that and he said because i still have a job my job is to get a job so that I can look after you. And it's never left me that sort of sense. And he did get a job. It took a while and he kind of got a job. And I know that in a different way, because the world has changed, that the, the, way, the kind of father he was really made an impression on me. He commuted for two years across the country so I didn't have to change schools. I didn't notice or care at the time, but then when it came, to raise my kids, I know that the imprint of your own parents is just on you, whether you like it or not. And so I found myself taking my own boys to the swimming, swimming pool every week to learn to swim. Why? Because my dad took us every week to the swimming pool. To, I don't even think I thought about it. It was just sort of what you did. And and so I think in various ways, in a way that it took me a long time to realize, some of the men in my life as I was growing up really had a profound influence on me. And some of that is, I think, coming through in the book now.
0: It is, because one of the things that comes through also in the book is the, the importance of older men to younger men and, and the, the bond that that can create. And, and again, I mean, actually, your role model at Oxford was a woman.
1: Yeah.
0: But, so it doesn't have to be that your role models are male, but there is an important and unique role that men play in the, the bringing up of boys. I, I went to an old boys... High school, similar. I was a grammar school, so not a comprehensive. And we also had a few teachers that were amazing, amazing. I mean, one of them, who's a legend and who, who died quite recently, would take us not just to sort of out, outward bound things, he would also take us, a whole bunch of boys in a bus, to the ballet, to the uh-huh. opera. We we were introduced for the first time to classical music. We were introduced to the National Theater. He he showed us this great, and he was incredibly, made an extreme point of not seeming to be other than the boys. You know, he was one of us. And he was gonna show us, however, what it was to be an educated, well-rounded man. And, mm-hmm. and that that included loving rugby, but also loving ballet. Right. It was He taught Latin, but he, he understood what boys wanted to do at, at lunchtime. And there was this glorious, in some ways, when I look back on it, male, male kind of Rearing that went on in that context yeah. in the school, and you know, and I think I mean, let's we, we won't
1: get ahead of ourselves, but the ability but there kind of, of a, alter- sorry, yeah. there's a, there's a mature masculinity which I talk about a bit in the book, like, so, I, and I think both words are important in that phrase, right? This idea of like it's mature, but it's also masculine. And I was thinking about like you you just prompted me to think about another teacher who had a huge influence on me, Mister Wormsley, who's affectionately known as the Worm who was the music teacher, but he he did everything music-wise and he got us all into doing music, orchestra, choir. And I remember one day uh, he tried to form this choir right? and it was uphill struggling, this sort of school we in. And he had girls, but he didn't have boys. I turned up, because I was a bit musical, I turned up and he said, well, we, do, we, don't, we need boys. So I just went over to the, at this point, we're in the sixth form, so last two years of high school for Americans listening. And I just went around and I grabbed all the mates I could and said, Come and be in the choir, and we all marched down. There was like 15 of us, and he auditioned them. And the audition consisted of him playing a C on the piano and seeing if they could sing the same note. That was literally it. It's like, I'm going to play a note. Can you sing it? And if you can sing it, you're in. <laughs> and about 50% of them made it in, and we had a blast. And half those guys were in the rugby team and so on too. So it's not like you're forced into these these binaries. But on the other hand, they were men, and there was definitely yeah. something they were bringing something different to to the education process just as fathers bring something different to the family there is
0: now i think a, a, quite a scarcity of male teachers and, and the teaching profession is really quite disproportionately female at this point and this might be a problem which again we're not supposed to bring up because obviously one has nothing against female teachers but there is something about the relationship between an older and younger man that matters i wanted to Start because I don't think people are aware of some of the statistics in your book. And I found them quite shocking actually, how far behind boys and men have gotten in our culture. Lay out a little bit of the stuff that maybe people are not fully aware of, the educational drawbacks, the, the life the life the the career drawbacks, the earnings collapse spell that out for me a little bit about why the crisis is here and yeah. what is the
1: crisis and, and and i agree that it's it's in some ways you you can be i was shocked frankly by some of what i was discovering and it's one of the reasons i ended up writing the book because i kept stumbling across these things very often in sort of footnote five of appendix table you know three and like, wait what I remember, I remember yes. looking, you know, a good example is I was really interested in what was happening to college enrollment during the pandemic. Yeah. And, and I was looking and I did, it was literally table four or something of the National Center on Education Statistics showed that the fall in male college enrollment in 2020 was seven times greater than female, but it wasn't in the bullet notes at the top. It wasn't the headlines. So we wrote about it and ended up, the Wall Street Journal ended up doing some more work on it. But it was, it, I can't tell you how hard it was to get that figure. And all the education scholars I knew were like, oh, I had no idea so it's not just like it's not just that average people don't know half the time because it is difficult to get at so a few i think points that 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 data points that help to frame the conversation like if we take education boys are basically behind pretty much every subject at every level in every advanced economy they're way behind in english like in the average school district like a grade level behind in the us and by the end of high school if you use high school gpa as a quite a good proxy For how people are doing there and you take the top those with the highest gpas top 10 percent two thirds of those are girls lowest gpas two thirds of those are boys so the gender gap is just absolute reverse then girls are 10 percentage points more likely to enroll in college 10 percentage points more likely to complete college on enrolling and what that means in terms of college is that women now have about a 15 percentage point higher chance of getting a college degree than men that 15 percentage points can be compared to the 13 percentage points the other way around in 1972, when Title IX was passed to help women and girls in education. So the gender inequality in US higher education today is bigger than it was when Title IX was passed. It just flipped the other way around, which nobody saw coming. So that's education. No, everyone, I mean, it's if we can get a, into an, the other areas as well, but.
0: It's, incre- it's an incredible success story, however, Amazing. for women and girls. Incredible. And when you look at the, 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 the gains that women and, and girls have made over the last 50 years, it's staggering, including black women and black girls. Right. So that's that's I mean, yes. there are There are all sorts of, and I think one of the things that was fascinating in the book is to say, well, yeah, we talk about these other categories and they do matter. But within those categories, if you look at the male-female skew, mm-hmm. it's really quite dramatic. Yep. Uh, I mean, compare black men and black women, for example. You have yes. some statistics in, in one chapter in which you, which you rightly, I think, say the crisis of the black male in America is but is, is triply hard. It's, yes. it's an incredibly difficult place to be in right now in the culture. But com- to, to explain that gender gap within these communities.
1: Yeah, so what what you find is, so there is overall gender gaps, which we've just said a little bit about in education, and then we can talk about employment maybe a little bit too. But when you then look within racial groups, you see different kinds of gender. There's a gender gap in every racial group, but for black Americans, the gender gap is just much bigger. And for poor Americans, the gender gap is much bigger. So basically, as you move away from the apex of society... Then the bigger the gender gaps get and i think this is one of the huge problems of this debate frankly is because most people doing this kind of work are at the top and and they're so busy leaning in to use cheryl sandberg's phrase that they don't look down and so you look around and go well i don't the men the men at brookings seem to be doing okay or, but yeah you're missing what's happening in the rest of society and for black men in particular all the gaps we've just talked about are much bigger for Bob black Uh, men than for any other group. So in college education, already black women are twice as likely to get a college degree as black men. So it's a two to one ratio, which is much bigger than for any other group. In the labor market, black men's wages have barely risen for the last 20 years. Black women have almost caught up and white women have blown right past them. So white women earn much more than black men, which was not true in 79. And so there's this horrible word that Kimberly Crenshaw, so which I know you've talked about before, called intersectionality. But applied properly, which I think most of the users don't, what it means is you've got these different intersections, look at them, and don't presume to know in advance what which way around it's going to flip. And I think for black Americans, it's uncontroversially true that on almost every measure we care about, black boys and men are worse off than black women and girls. It doesn't mean there aren't still problems for black women and girls. But black men are worse off, and not by chance, but in some cases because they're men. So I think black men face a kind of racialized sexism, which is, again, hard to talk about because you're gonna distract attention from the the broader push for racial equality. And if you point out how well black women are doing on many fronts, that's seen as in some way diluting the push, and I don't think it is. It's focusing it on where the attention is most needed.
0: Oh, what it's doing is trying to figure out who's, who's actually doing well and who isn't. Right. <laughs> yeah, Make that empirical question. Because yeah. how, how on earth do we find out who to help? Yeah. These, are, these, are, these are purely empirical. Talk about yeah. the changing economy, which, of course, is the fundamental reason. And, and you, you point out, obviously, that these crises of the man and of the family, to some extent, and of fatherhood and of boyhood, become exponentially harder the further down the, the socioeconomic ladder you get. So that working class boys and men face today a world that 50 years ago would have been unrecognizable to your average men. Tell, tell, tell me, how, how has that happened in the economy? Why haven't men been able to 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 step up?
1: Well, I think it's, it's important to make a distinction between Recognizing the the economic rise of women, so women's wages have risen across the board. Women's employment has risen across the board. Forty percent of women now earn more than the average man, compared to thirteen percent of women in seventy nine. So again, that's an amazing stat. It's just, it, <laughs> me. I mean, it's not fifty percent, but it's no. But for it's the the male and female wage distributions look a lot more similar. 41%. Now, that's
0: an interesting point I wanted to get to yeah. the, the the gender gap, the pay gap. Because... Well, we'll
1: get to, yeah, for sure because I do think that's like again it's one of these things that's more shrouded in myth than it is in math to be honest. It's, there's a lot of misconceptions on on all sides, but in the labor market Essentially, I think what's happened is that structural shocks to the economy over the last 50 years have disproportionately hurt men. So when we've seen a move to free trade, for sure, that's had a disproportionate effect on the kinds of jobs that men were doing. Automation seems to threaten and is undermining male jobs a bit more than female jobs because they're the sorts of jobs that can be a bit more automated out of existence. The number of jobs where it's helpful to be really physically strong are actually dropping in the economy generally. Although weirdly, there are some caring jobs like nursing and social care, where actually physical strength is quite important. So we might see a bit of a rethinking of that. But in general, what you've seen is, combined with the educational problems that boys are facing, there's no longer a labor market that offers a good life to a guy without very good education. There was 50 years ago. And so to that extent, you've just seen this collapse. The result is that most men today in the US earn less than most men did in 1979. all women essentially earn more than all women did in, in 79. And so if you think about the US as a, if, you, if American men were a nation, it's poorer than it was 40 years ago. That's a pretty extraordinary fact, right? That, that, and it means that sons earn less than their dads. And then as families are struggling economically, it turns out that being poor has a much bigger negative impact on boys than on girls, and having unstable family environments. And so it turns out that boys are much more sensitive to their childhood environment in terms of what happens to them. And so then the cycle turns. You get men struggling, which means you've got poorer families, and in the poorer families, the boys really struggle. Gender gap in education at the bottom is huge. And then those boys will struggle in the labor market. And so male disadvantage is much more strongly inherited than female disadvantages. And so that's why these things all end up looping around. And also, as you suggested, Andrew, being strongly connected. You can't, in terms of the way people actually live, the difference between what's happening in their family life and their work life, and so that's that's not a distinction that they draw. These things are all related and together it means that a lot of these boys and men are struggling one side note is that if you look at the uk it's actually white working class boys that are struggling the most they're right at the bottom and in fact in terms of going to college white britons are have lowest levels of college going of any racial group in the U- in the uk now and so whereas in the us there's this very strong racial dimension to it because of the position of black boys in the uk there's a stronger class dimension to it but in both cases both matter and we have to think we can't think about gender through this binary lens
0: We've also seen, obviously obviously over the last 50 years, a dramatic change in the nature and shape of families, and a a quite drastic decline in marriage rates, and a huge increase in the number of children who are being brought up without one parent or the other, and mainly the father. And this also seems to be correlated very much with class. In fact, there's almost this sort of rather terrifying <laughs> dynamic in which yes. the, the wealthy upper upper middle class are figuring out that, oh, we have fathers are very important and we have to do them, I mean, the marriages are staying longer. They may be starting later, but they are quite and, we, and, and But at the lower levels, when I say lower, I mean everything. everybody below the top two-fifths, mm-hmm. things are going what we used to call in England skew-if, <laughs> if you remember that word. So right. how are boys as opposed to girls affected by a breakdown in family structure, because that's another obvious phenomenon alongside the economy, which seems, again, this is against our intuition, we think, oh, boys will be okay, Mm -hmm. boys are resilient, boys are tough, they're they're gonna be great, but in fact, they seem to be, to use crude term, be fucked up much more (laughs) by the different shape of the family than girls, who seem to be actually more resilient.
1: Yeah, that's right. And I think you've put the line in, you know, broadly the right place. I mean, it is something like the top fifth, two fifths, third, whatever, kind of okay. And actually college educated Americans are as likely to get married as their parents and a bit more likely to stay married than their parents. So marriage is, you know, alive and well at the top of US society in ways, by the way, that nobody in the feminist movement predicted in the 70s. The whole point of women's economic independence was to render marriage redundant. I think one of the great paradoxes of of how it's turned out is that the most economically powerful women in the history of the world, college-educated American women, right? I'll I'll just simplification, but like credibly powerful, are now the most likely to get and stay married, which was not what Gloria Steinem. Had in mind, although Gloria Steinem just got married to Christian Bale's father. I don't know if you saw that. Really? Yes, yeah, it's, it's a weird, yeah, it's a whole, it's a whole difference. she thing. would argue, of course, that getting married
0: she was against was the sense of marriage as a fate, exactly. which women had to choice. do in it's order to survive she economically. She said that. She said it's a and choice. And so I'm just going gonna that up, but yeah. And obviously, that is a great thing. It is a to choose a marriage, however hard it is, and god knows it's really hard yeah is a different phenomenon being forced into it as a function of economic or social correct but
1: that's great that is a huge it's success right We've taken out the economic dependency that was the fatal flaw in that traditional family form now there were lots of things about that family form that worked pretty well pretty much everyone knew what their job was it was pretty stable the kids generally were raised by both parents there was a division of labor, the fatal flaw was it was incredibly unfair to women, and it put them in a position of economic dependence to men. And so that chain of dependency has been very largely and successfully broken in advanced economies. The result of that is that for for a number of women, they are choosing, they can choose not to be married or have kids outside marriage. So it's 40% of kids now born outside marriage in the US. Only a minority of American children will now grow up with both biological parents and particularly for less educated and poorer families, when the relationship breaks up, the relationship with the dad very often is the one that suffers. And as you just alluded to, you, 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 I'll use a slightly more uh, social scientific term than fucked up for what's happening to you. boys, but there's this phrase in psychology where they talk about orchids and dandelions. Dandelions will be fine, whatever happens. Orchids are very, very sensitive to their environment. And it turns out that boys are a bit more orchid and girls are a bit more dandelion. And in terms of family stability, economic poverty, neighbourhood poverty, it just—it's clear that boys are more affected by those disadvantages than girls are. And so that does create this intergenerational class inequality, which is where where you know where I think we should be worried. Whether you're left or right, like if you're worried about inequality and you're on the, on the left, you're on economic inequality, you've got to worry about boys and men because unless boys and men start doing better, we're gonna have more and more economic inequality. And by the way, if you're worried about families and you're on the right, you've really got to worry about how boys and men are doing, including the low-income ones. The
0: other, I mean, this is another thing that, in the book that really shocked me, to be honest, which is, what happens with fathers and children after breakups or after divorces or after, and within six years of their parents separating, I'm quoting the book now, one in three children never see their father, and a similar proportion see him once a month or less. So fathers who have have left their marriage and their families do disappear from Uh. kids' lives. Another stat here, among fathers who did not complete high school, 40% live apart from their children, compared to just 7% of fathers who graduated from college. That's, that's now, that's a loss for the fathers, obviously. Yes. If, if Unless you have a view that being a father is being able to be free from your kids, which is not far off how my father saw things, but okay. uh, we, we can talk about it. Yeah, it's a d- different but, conversation, uh, but yeah. It is a different conversation, <laughs> yeah. but, it, but it wasn't, he wasn't yeah. atypical that, look, I'm fighting the money, Yep. I'll come home, but at the weekends, I get to do whatever I want, and you you take care of the kids. Quite that traditional family. Mm-hmm. I When I see middle-class upper middle-class fathers today, I don't recognize them right. in terms of their... Again, things are getting better at that Out level. Tall. It's more equal. Yeah. Fathers are more involved. It's fantastic. Right. But once you go below 50, once you hit the, the, the large numbers of people who are struggling, the collapse of fatherhood is really quite sh- yeah. shocking, and it means that you also have more single men alone and tell me mm. tell me why marriage is important to men well i uh, mean the, the general view is oh god marriage you know it's it's it's, it's 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 men whine about marriage all the time it's kind of what they it's a burden it's a ball, ball and, and chain, chain. It's old
1: stuff that we Her have. indoors she who must be obeyed yeah,
0: yeah yes well you're this is very english of us that we're talking <laughs> very. about that but, but and the english had a sort of you know the english male's view of was I grew up with marriage, was this, this terrible burden that, that was only relieved by spending time with their mates at the pub. But it is, it is important and married men are happier and, and, and yes. in touch with wives and children, having that sense of, I mean, this is the thing that really got to me, of the worst thing you can say to anybody is that no one needs you. Correct.
1: Yeah. Just that and, sense of the need to be needed. Is a, is a human universal. With the and that, of We've people. got we've got that
0: from several versions. We've got it economically. Mm-hmm. You're not needed anymore. We have it culturally. Right. You're really you're a problem. You're toxic. If only we if only everyone were women, we would have a much better society. There exactly. I mean that's not far off <laughs> what, what some people seem to You have the APA talking about toxic masculinity, mm-hmm. the men are a, a problem in our society. Yes. Tell me tell me why marriage is
1: important. Okay. What well, is so let let me let me slightly disagree with some of some of what you've just said, which is I, I think well let, let, well first of all, let me give you a bunch of stats stats to support yeah, every, support everything you've just said, and then I'm gonna try and deviate from it a little bit. So like women are twice as likely as men to file for divorce in surveys now men are more likely than women to say marriage is important to them and so this idea this myth that it's like you know you have to trap men into it they don't want it and they all just want to be go off being cowboys or whatever it is and we have to sort of right and it's women who are like absolutely not true certainly not anymore and i do think that kind of one of the great one of the great challenges of any culture is to find ways for men to be pro-social like how do we connect men to children to society etc and marriage has been a way to do that very successful way to do that but with this fatal flaw we just talked about massively unequal women have now risen in that sense broken the chains of dependency so then the question is do we need men right there is a reason why a lot of feminist utopias imagined from from you know rick and morty back to her land and wonder woman oh they're these utopian societies that just coincidentally don't have any men in them so there is a strain of utopianism there which is a sense like we don't need them but what we have to do is reinvent the family and fatherhood based on more direct relationships between fathers and children than the one that sounds like you had and even to some extent and i had so the old model of the family was like a direct relationship between dad and mom she's economically dependent on him he's emotionally dependent on her in the sense that she has to do all the Childcare work, and maybe dad had like a dotted line on an org chart to his kids, right? Vaguely knew. Was it somebody said, "I'm vaguely aware that there are smaller humans in the house," right? That was like a father. Sounds sounds like so, Evelyn war or something. I somebody, somebody, it was someone vaguely aware there are small people in the house. But if you if you don't reinvent fatherhood. So that dads matter as dads with a direct relation to their kids then what happens is that if they if they don't meet the old benchmark which is the breadwinner which by the way we don't really want them to anymore because of the women's movement then what are they good for and the answer is they're good as fathers period not fathers as breadwinners not fathers as protective but fathers as fathers and it's pretty clear that dads do bring something different to the party especially for boys but not just boys the mental health of women at 33 Is predicted by the quality of their relationship with their father at the age of 16. So dads matter in ways that are complementary to but different to mums, especially in adolescence. And honestly, I think upper middle class parents know that. I also just think they want to share resources. And so they're building marriages around the idea of co-parenting we're gonna raise our kids together, but on a new egalitarian basis. So it might look traditional from the outside, but it's not because traditional marriage was was based on economic dependency. And that is not why upper middle-class American women are getting married, but they do still want their kids to have dads. That's the model we need to apply more generally and support fathers as fathers and not just treat them as walking ATMs who once they stop dispensing cash are basically redundant. Because that's why I think then a lot of them get benched
0: one thing that you raise as the book goes along is 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 biology hmm. i think the really good thing about this book is that it 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 insists as any sane view of almost anything in the social realm will insist on that culture is incredibly important but biology is also in the mix it has to be in the mix because we are animals and we have we have we have evolved and we have certain instincts and men and women have through evolution evolved in such a way for there to be a natural division of labor which is now rendered inoperable but you're still left with the inheritance of 200,000 years of evolution yeah. in which men will be more aggressive they will take more risks they are hornier, as you mm-hmm. point out, in a rather superficial way. I mean, okay. women's sexual desire can be is, a, is is can be just as deep, but it tends to be more committed. What they call sure. demisexuality it, Yeah, it's you had you had Louise Louise
1: Perry on, I think. Yeah, a couple of weeks. great great episode. Yeah. yeah, great episode. So,
0: but 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 the but men are driven to have Mm -hmm. more sex than women its monogamy is harder for them than it is for women in general it's not impossible but it is harder and that is also part of the problem here that men are biologically different and have different needs and slightly different psyches than women Mm. and if we can't understand that if we assume that everything they do is just a choice or just cultural then we're really being unfair to them in a way we're not empathizing with the challenges that being man being a male has and what happens is that people tend to either celebrate this in this rather awful pagan celebration of male sexual power or promiscuity you see this in so much of popular culture so in hip-hop for example and other things yep. where it is simply about who's the biggest man who has so to speak the biggest whatever yeah. and can,
1: well, can you wave it, it around and B- bde big dick energy like being discussed like by senatorial <laughs> candidates on, on the republican side now so kind of glorying in this immature masculinity and so it's interesting that you picked up on that because you know there was there was one chapter i didn't put in the book cut out completely and the book was a lot longer at one point and one chapter i kept in despite some protests the chapter i cut out was the one on sex which is why you think you're probably correct to say i treat it but you know rather superficially because somebody very wise said to me that if you have a proper look at sex then you will never get anybody to talk about anything else in your book if you think they're going to talk about your education if, they, if you think they are going to talk about apprenticeships when you've got a whole bunch of stuff in there about how horny men are then forget it so that one came out and I kept the one on, but I did keep a, a chapter in there on the extent to which there are biological differences between men and women that play out, not just physically, but in terms of their psychology and their preferences. And the three big ones are, I think you've mentioned, most of these are a risk, risk-taking, both in a good and a bad way, right? Potential for aggression and, and sex. And again, averages, distributions overlap, but those distributions don't overlap all that much. I mean, they are quite different between male and female. Carol Hooven's work on Testosterone. Have you had Carol on? I can't remember. Yes, I did yeah. last year. She's A, very but I
0: must but I will point out, Carol is besieged, intellectually, academically, that the the, the the ability to tell the truth about fundamental differences biologically between men and women because people are terrified that that will somehow legitimize inequality
1: as opposed to just help us understand reality. (laughs) Which is, I mean, that's, that's, that's the good reason, right? So you get, I mean, I actually have this line in there, which is that, you know, people on the left are quite fond of calling people on the right science deniers but i think when it comes to neuroscience it's the left that really the science deniers and i understand why because it's not that long ago that some of these biological differences were used as a way to discriminate against women obviously a woman can't run a country or a company because she might be in the wrong point in the menstrual cycle or obviously women can't th- whatever you know women can't think in a way that would make them good engineers and so on so and that's very recent and so i totally understand the instinct around it but on the other hand What frustrates me about this and why I ended up writing, keeping the chapter and so on, is that it's not that recognizing there are natural differences makes culture somehow less important. It makes it more important. Because how those differences are expressed or not expressed, what outlets they have or don't have, how modulated they are, is the result of culture. So the one thing I'd probably correct in what you just said is that men have greater potential for aggression. They're not necessarily, we're talking about physical aggression now, women actually more relationally aggressive, but more potential for physical aggression. But they're not actually necessarily more aggressive. It depends on the circumstances. And we've seen this massive decline in violent crime. There's a huge difference in violent crime in Singapore compared to Malaysia, in the US today, compared to 50 years ago. And so why? Well, because of culture, because of nurture, because of incentives, right? Actually, I don't know about you, Andrew, but the incentive for me to start punching people in the face isn't that big at the Brookings Institution? Right? <laughs> of course, we do it intellectually. That's not what I've heard. <laughs> I mean, we do it. We do it. Our pugilism <laughs> is entirely intellectual, and I don't. And so,
0: and so, what you do is you. Under- but we've kids. gone from that justifying hideous discrimination on the to basis denial. of of natural too. actually the reverse in which we literally have the atlantic last week running a piece saying we don't need sex aggregation in sports because the difference between mm. women runners and male runners is entirely a function of socialization and we of course we have the fact that we can't that now what a man is and what a woman is men now have vaginas and women now have penises so there's this other transgender sort of cultural <coughs> attack upon the notion of biological sex at all in fact you find increasingly mm. The word gender is now introduced mm. not as an interesting way in which sex is culturally expressed, but as sex itself, because there is nothing. There's only social structures. There isn't any biology. The other thing I'd say about testosterone, what's interesting, is that yes. testosterone goes up and down in humans, in men, mm. all the time. And and if you create atmospheres in which so example, there's chaos or violence or anarchy then men's testosterone levels will keep going up. If you create an environment in which they're Correct. married, they have a ch- children they have to take care of, they have an interest, they will calm down. And as you pointed, out, there was this remarkable testosterone effect with marriage men. Yeah. It, it, the, the marriage itself, this cultural construct, will help decrease their likelihood of having peak testosterone. They're always going to have much more testosterone than women, any anyway. women. Mm-hmm. There is huge variety within that variability, depending upon the environment and context in which you're in. Which is why, for example, in the inner city, it is not surprising in high crime neighborhoods, the testosterone is probably going to be higher because you have to be on guard. You have to be out there prepared for violence and so these these things compound themselves culturally and biologically
1: yeah it's i mean i actually quote joe henrik who has this line i teased him a bit about it but he's the guy that wrote the the book weird and so evolutionary psychologist at harvard colleague of carol's and he describes marriage as a testosterone suppression device (laughs) and (laughs) i said oh thanks that's great yeah i've been married for 30 (laughs) years but he's right of course interestingly (laughs) men who men with higher men with higher testosterone a bit more likely to get married they're a bit more likely to mate. But then once they're married, and especially if they're involved in the kids, like they're in family life, then their testosterone levels go down. And so there's a very plausible argument that Joe and others make that actually one of the main reasons for this long run decline in in violence has been the rise of monogamous marriage, largely uh, driven by the church. Because what that meant was that most men were mating. Unlike the world before, where we had the math problem of surplus men, where they didn't mate and therefore they had nothing to lose, and their testosterone levels were high and risks were high and too. I don't have good evidence on contemporary levels of testosterone, but the broader point you're making, I think, is is right that biology and culture co-evolve. It's not that they're really separate, it's not a binary, it's not a false choice. It's not like, oh, is it 70% biology and 30%? No, no, no. They affect each other. And how how these different tendencies are expressed is different. And denying it, at worst, pathologizing it. And so I will say a little bit about how potentially pathologizing the higher sex drive of men on average and desire for all the stuff you talk uh, to Louise about, so I won't repeat. Actually, just saying that socialization or saying it means there's something wrong with you is not very helpful. Let me tell you, when you're raising boys in a world of ubiquitous online pornography, just shaming them for it, very Puritan feel to this, say there's something wrong with you, is incredibly damaging when you're trying to raise young men to young boys boys to be good and mature young men it's not like their sex drive is going to go away but it is going to get they're going to learn how to cope with it they're going to learn what it means they're going to learn how to express it in ways that are adaptive but that's that's a job it's a cultural task and you can only engage in the cultural task if you admit that it exists in the first place
0: yes absolutely um and violence begets violence and and testosterone culture begets testosterone culture yeah and and when you're also horny and alone your propensity for greater horniness can continue and continue in other words you can get lost young men can get lost in testosterone It's perfectly understandable. and look if you take like murder as mm. a statistic and you find that 90% of murders are committed by men
1: mm. which 95
0: think is pretty true, 95%, 95%. Mm. now if you if you remove any biological or any testosterone factor in that, it looks like this group is the most noxious, unbelievably destructive, terrible group in society. The what are they doing? it is so disproportionate. It's only when you do have some natural understanding that men are almost always going to be like that. And fact, there's almost no culture in which this isn't true. Then, then you're, you're telling men that there's something really wrong with them. They are, their masculinity itself is the problem. And when you get the APA, that mm-hmm. you, you, I mean, people, I've had this debate sometimes with other people about feminism and so on, where, where you say toxic masculinity, and they say, we're, we're just talking about toxic masculinity. We're not talking about masculinity. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, where are, your, where are your studies on good masculinity? And they don't have any. Yes. Th- 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 that you realize, in fact, that for them, masculinity is the problem. And they are the people trying to dictate our public policy about men. And and so it does seem to me that your your ability to see both these aspects is crucial. It yeah. means it's more complicated, it yeah. means it's more nuanced.
1: It means that it's hard it but it's true. It means that it's true and that you don't sound crazy to the 98% of the population who are just going about their lives. I mean, if you go to people and say, do you, you know, and actually you can poll parents, like they, they agree that there are some differences between boys and girls and, and you're right. One of the reasons why I came to find the term toxic masculinity so unhelpful is because you put those two words close together like that and it inevitably sends a message that there's something intrinsically wrong with you. And they say, and they say oh, no, no, you're right, non-toxic. And actually, the, this happened to the American Psychological Association. They then tweeted out, because they, they got so attacked for saying that, you know, courage and stoicism, like, these things were like part of a toxic masculine culture. They said, no, 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 We We also emphasize the positive aspects of masculinity, like leadership and courage. First of all, they, they didn't, that was untrue. But, but secondly, what was fascinating was what happened next, because they then got attacked by feminists who said, wait, are you saying that women can't be leaders and courageous? So they couldn't escape because any attempt to define non-toxic masculinity and differentiate it from femininity is going to fail in the hands of the people that are trying to do it. And so we should back away from the term altogether. Of course, recognize that there are aspects of masculinity as there are of femininity, which in an immature expression are damaging for society and our job is to make that less true. And by and large, we've been doing pretty well over the last few hundred years of moving to a much more mature kind of masculinity. And I think that that task has to continue, but you do have to accept that there is such a thing as masculinity before you can help to mature it.
0: Let me talk a little bit about the rights problems on this front. (laughs) Mm. What you're beginning to see, especially with MAGA, with, with certain elements of the online right and the far right, which are disproportionately actually created and generated by a lot of men sitting alone looking at their computer screens to begin with, is a kind of celebration of maleness as a repudiation of women, as a repudiation of these soy boys, Mm -hmm. a repudiation of any kind of sense that you're vulnerable or emotionally complicated. In other words, in response to some of this feminism, you also now have this kind of crude, masculinism as sort of alex jones or donald trump trump version pussy, pussy of masculinity yeah. grab them by the pussy, pussy is the greatest achievement for the man the man and again trump represents a sort of rather pagan understanding i am particularly male because i can bag anyone not because i have exercised the 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 virtues necessary to appeal and stay with one woman. And even the women are entirely obviously selected on the basis of the most superficial. Mm. and then and he did this even at it is in military college. He just bring them around as to- as trophies, tokens yeah. here. This woman is my way of gaining status among men, and that means I'm not going to have status from being this boring, stay-at-home, diligent husband. I'm going to show off my supermodel wife. I'm going to show off my mother, and I'm going to have lots of affairs at the same time, and I'm going to brag about them in private. And this is what the religious right in America has now celebrated yeah. i know what do you see the righteous gemstones do you see that they have this amazing subtext where they have this men's club which is all these abs, super bodybuilders all these people dragging big i mean it's the most <laughs> it's like a viking yeah. fantasy i mean it's super gay i have to say it's <laughs> because it, it's sort of it's sort of taking the model of masculinity and and completely going nuts with it. yeah there's uh, some of this stuff so probably. you have a problem there too right you, have, yeah. you don't Equally. have a right The conservatism seems to me should have some strain, strong strain in it of conservative manhood, which is about responsibility, protection of the family, taking care of children. Now, it becomes harder, does it not, when you are not actually taking care of your family, when you are not the breadwinner, when you are actually the person that that's psychologically hard to
1: do, is it not? It's still... There's clearly an adaptation required here, but neither side are helping with the adaptation because each side is dug in, right? We talked a lot about the left pathologizing, just refusing to see that there's anything to see here. So the White House Gender Equality Council is nothing of the kind. It literally doesn't deal with a single gender inequality running the other way. And there is discussion of toxic masculinity. That creates a massive opening on the right, by the way, which many people are only too willing to exploit. And on the right, you have this immature, boorish kind of masculinity which is a sort of cultural reaction to what they see as the political correctness or whatever the wokeism on the left but nothing to offer other than a sense of it was feminism's fault let's go back which no one actually wants right if you talk to republican men if you said to them do you want your daughter to have fewer opportunities than your son is it less important that your daughter goes to college or so? none, none of them will say yes no one no one really wants to go back Well, maybe a few. Go back to the 50s. But people like David French, who's just written a nice substack about this, about boys and men and others, I think from that tradition, are actually trying to model a kind of version of mature masculinity, which does recognize some of these differences that men bring, but without trapping them in the breadwinner role. So is it harder? Yes. Because now being a provider might mean providing leadership, it might mean providing care, it might be a different kind of provision but you're still caring for your family. It's still your job to look after your family and to look after your kids, even if the way you're doing that is different. And I think there is a thoughtful conservatism which actually acknowledges the role of fathers, acknowledges the role of families, but doesn't rely on this mystical idea that we can somehow go back and that somehow we can put feminism well, you know, back in its bottle. And, and that this is the fault of feminism because it's A, untrue and, and B, completely naive. And then they have nothing to offer josh hawley wrote to get a speech at the national conservatism conference railing against the left and his message was men and boys and men are struggling that's true this is because the left hate them they keep talking about toxic masculinity and that's true enough to sound plausible and so you should vote for me okay senator hawley what policies do you have an ill-defined investment in manufacturing and some sort of tax bonus for marriage which won't work so like the cupboard is bare when it comes to actual solutions from the right. But both sides are just failing in different ways. The way I would characterize it is that the left are turning their back on boys and men, and the right are in danger of trying to turn back the clock on women and girls. And in the world real people live in, neither of those sound like very appealing options.
0: One thing you don't talk about much in the book is, is a, this is kind of a 19th century adaptation to industrialization and in men, was the emergence of sports as a huge cultural area mm-hmm. in which men, as men, kind of were able to enact, as it were, battling, fighting, competitions, warfare in a, mm. in a benign way. I mean, rugby, the game, was invented so that these young men would have an outlet for their aggression in a way that would also help them understand why they need to be part of teams. Mm. I don't know whether you saw a really rather wonderful piece in the New York Times. I think David French actually referred to it in his Substack of this group of men that get together and just do sit-ups and they do exercises mm-hmm. in the morning together. But they also bond with each other. They have a space yes. where they men can't get together and just kibitz. They have to get together and Correct. do something. Correct. So that they're 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 <laughs> like when they're playing or golf, for example. Yes. The massive, massive arena for siphoning male desires to shoot wildlife or 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 travel across space, but in a completely anesthetized and socially beneficial way. Tell, I mean yeah, that's right. Sports have created there was a solution of sorts as a way to siphon off some of the excess testosterone energy,
1: yeah. I think that I don't talk much about that. and And I'll be honest and say that, I'm not really a kind of across some of the evidence there, so I'll speak a bit anecdotally for a minute too, but I think it's it's basically true that there's more physicality in in boys and young men, right? I think that is uncontroversial. I, you know, when, when, I, when I just kept producing boys, a friend, a slightly older friend who'd also had boys just said, "Does are just like dogs. You just run them out twice a day and they're fine. <laughs> and, I, 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 and there is more to it than that, to be sure, but there's also a deep truth to that. And I actually talk about how this guy, this Australian guy, we deliberately tried to get male carers for our kids sometime. This Australian guy actually was doing, you know, was looking after our kids. He was our carer for a while. He would pitch tents with them and they would do homework in tents and he'd make them run after a rugby ball in between doing math homework and stuff like that. He had an intuitive sense of that. And male teachers, I think, do too. And so the decline of phys ed. Uh, in schools is a problem. The decline in these extracurricular activities that some of which we talked about at the top, uh, including you know, some of the sports I used to play, I think that is a, a bigger loss for boys than it is for girls. It's not that it isn't a loss for both. I think that is that's usually important and And I think it's interesting there's this, there's this debate going on apparently between some evolutionary biologists about whether or not all the hunting that men used to do actually, Was a net loss in terms of expenditure, energy expenditure and energy gain, but it did. It sort of was a mating ritual, basically. I'm not convinced by that. A bonding ritual, you mean, or a mating? No, no. It was a way of signalling state. It was a way of signalling, like, winning. But I also think it was probably a bit about teams, and I do think that these collective activities are very important to structure for boys and men for the reason you started with. Like, there's this great line in psychology, which is that women women are friends face to face men are friends shoulder to shoulder fishing watching a game doing whatever and as i think that there is again a bit of a truth there's a truth to that and it took me ages my wife would sit our boys home they'd come home from school right and they'd, they'd come walk through the door and she'd sit them down opposite the table or the breakfast bar or whatever and she'd sit them down she'd give them a snack with them she'd sit there directly facing how was your day and then just go fine <laughs> is that it? Fine, you're going to do that. And eventually I said to her, that's not how to communicate with them. A, they just walked in the door. and You've got to not go face-to-face. That's not how... Because half the time, I would then be driving them somewhere later or sitting on the sofa watching a movie with them or playing video games with them, whatever. And they would say, hey, this weird thing happened today at school, Dad. Oh, yeah, this girl said this thing to me I didn't really like. And I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, fine. All right, much better way of communicating, shoulder-to-shoulder. And again, it's just one of those insights about psychology which is hugely important. And it's a chance for me to point out that I think that if you were to name one profession I might be even more worried about than teaching becoming feminized, it might be psychology. Among psychologists under the age of 30, only 5% are men now. And it's down to 29% generally. In the older, the, the, if, if you find me a male psychologist, he's old and about to retire. But if boys want to turn to a psychologist, if they need help, say, with porn addiction, maybe they're going to want to prefer a male carer. And so the denuding of men out of these caring professions is actually causing a problem kind of in in and of itself as well.
0: Two points. One one I remember Sebastian Younger had a really beautiful book called Tribe, which was talked about the depression that soldiers experience when they come back from war. Which is often related to PTSD, but one of the things that's it's also related to is they feel so much lonelier when they are thrown with a bunch of dudes together in mm. a difficult and they bond in that way, it gives huge meaning to their lives. It gives them an identity and a meaning. Come home, they just want one, one individual in a in a in a cold, atomized economy and society, and they get very depressed. And I and I think that the one of the I, I personally find it distressing that the the willingness to destroy any institution or association in which men are with each other, without women as this sort of huge problem to ha- to mm-hmm. have because it's going to in- it's going to entrench like in- at Harvard they insisted that all these male student groups be disbanded or integrated or go co- or banned entirely as if there's something inherently wrong about men hanging out together as opposed to being yeah. co-ed and and the the also the collapse of single sex education which which i mean I, especially I went for men post, by the way i mean particularly for men it's yeah. my, you can get all female yeah. occasionally there's a lot more all boys, female
1: colleges than all male
0: colleges now exactly and the the banishment of male solidarity as it were or company is it's now sort of almost restricted to sports and but, that's uh,
1: and as you just said that's that's declining I, I actually i really strongly agree with that and i'm not sure i would have done 20 years ago you know my own experience was like i was in the boy scouts and it was you know it was what what, what it was called and i do think i understand the reaction that a lot of women have particularly like i have one colleague who's a generation above me and i mentioned to her that i was doing something with all my male friends at the weekend She said, i hate that i hate that like it's the old boys club you're excluding the women and so on too and i said no no no. we're not excluding the women we're just including ourselves and we're not going to promote anybody or give a but it wasn't that long ago when those all male spaces were absolutely used as a way to... yeah so so i totally get that instinct but we're not in that world anymore and we're now in a world where men are much more likely to be lonely than women have fewer friends than women and are struggling socially and so i have to tell you i don't think i have this in the book but a moment probably on the route to the book was when i saw that the boy scouts association in america had gone co-ed and re- and re- had rebranded themselves bsa so as to sort of disguise the b and i'm sure it's just a matter of time before the b goes and so and actually as someone that's been a scout leader myself and gone through scouts i had this moment where the kind of 90s feminist in me was like good and then the current me is like no not good we actually do still need some spaces probably for girls and boys, you know, not too many, no, not necessarily formal ones, of course, you're not going to have sort of rigid segregation of any kind, but some voluntary spaces. I, I Actually, I think it's it's a bad idea to not have any at all. And that's not what I think mo- I would have thought 20 years ago. But it's also a sign of the huge success of the women's movement, right? We wouldn't be able to have this conversation if the women's movement hadn't been so successful, that we can relax, we can relax about those things in a way that we couldn't 30 years ago.
0: I agree. And we also need to, Find new ways, not not re reestablish some old boys club, but to find ways that some of those old institutions, which were created and performed multiple functions. One of those functions was patriarchal attempt to entrench power, but another one was socialization, which is healthy. You yes. don't, you can, you can figure out the distinction and re remake things. I want to just as a yeah, slight aside, but obviously, as a as a gay man and as a gay boy, I. I, I felt both part of this book but also not part of this mm-hmm. book in the sense that gay boys in particular, it again, we can't stereotype this thing as a whole range. So yes, there's plenty of gay average. boys think, who are... Total studs, yeah. total jocks that, yeah. that loved sports and all the rest of and, them. And more people like me, who are, were in that sense gender non-conforming, in the sense that I, 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 if, I, if they made me play another rugby game, I was going to kill myself. Mm. <laughs> well, actually, the rugby game itself would have killed me because I was little and I, I was small. And, and, uh, and I wasn't into contact. I wasn't into rough and tumble. I was slightly different. But at the same time, here are a couple of things that I think are very similar, which is that men in general, again we're being general mm-hmm. but they are more capable of sitting alone in a room looking at a computer for long amounts of time than most mm-hmm. women that mm-hmm. you can get absorbed video games are a huge 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 thing in terms of men same with porn In as much as you can you mm-hmm. men can be alone essentially with porn infinitely longer than any woman would ever think of it Correct. Uh, because the the male psyche seems to be more isolated more fascinated by these things than with actual connection with others, and so things like porn are going to be much more dangerous for men. Mm-hmm. You see, for example, the, the tendencies of men to only want to fuck and not really have these emotions. You see, it, you see it writ large in the gay male community, in which the struggle to construct meaningful and solid loving relationships long-term is much harder because you're both male but you, you're both male, and you're in a world without any women to, to temper it. So you actually have a, an even more problematic, so you have very high rates, if you're not careful, in the gay community of people online hooking up all the time, and, and the connection of that with drugs and all the rest of it, and the, mm-hmm. the, this is why for me, part of the argument for marriage was not we're gonna turn every gay man into a straight man, but that we'll provide something some structure to channel these energies to pr- more productive and make you happier yeah. than being alone the whole of life seeking sex as you get older and can't get it anymore. Yeah, it's it can be really brutal for gay men, partly because of their masculinity, which is which is which which has this. And if you want to, one thing I try and do with lefties who really sort of seem to have this notion that being male is somehow defective, is is, is to show them that. Maybe if they could show that gay men uh, both have all the sort of glories of manhood in a way. Lots of them take huge amounts of risk in all sorts of places, but also struggle because there's a huge amount of loneliness. There's a huge amount of despair. There's a huge amount of obsessive, addictive behavior with respect to porn or with respect to gaming and all the rest of it. So
1: technology as well as gayness. I'm just throwing those two things. No, it's great. The two things that occurred to me. So interesting. I mean, this is... Like I'm a I'm a classical liberal I'm a I'm Mills biographer and so this relationship between individual freedom and autonomy and institution the role of institutions in helping us to temp, temper us to use your phrases when you the, what was it the the well tempered man was I think some nineteenth century book and the, that idea of tempering is hugely important right I think it's one reason why it matters for example there's a huge man gap in every almost every Christian denomination in the US which is like it's women. Going to church. There's this great paper from Catherine Eden and her colleagues on it's called The Tenuous Attachments of Working Class Men. And it talks about how these different institutions that used to anchor men have dissolved more for them than for women, their you know, church, work, family, etc. So I do think there's something really to be said for that. And I'm reminded of David Cameron's famous line at the Conservative Party conference where he came out for same sex marriage and, and he said, I'm not in favor of same-sex marriage despite being a conservative. I'm in favor because I'm a conservative. I believe in institutions. I believe in the role of institutions to help people make commitments to each other, to help them be better versions of themselves, etc. And I don't think that's incompatible with a liberalism that says, like, in the end, you can exit those institutions, you can revise those institutions in the way that we are. But but actually the institutionlessness arguably of some aspects of gay culture is a problem i'm sure for the reason you just identified and one of the biggest and our mutual friend jonathan Rausch, who i know you've had on right was like was precisely so that gay men lesbian women could also have institutional structures with which to be better versions of themselves i thought that was a compelling compelling argument particularly to social conservatives yeah Cameron was plagiarizing me at the time
0: was he I was quite happy well of course that was, that was the core argument at the beginning I uh, and that, I was very proud of it yes I what mean a great moment. is saying exactly what, that Oh, incredible moment. for me incredible for me to have made this argument and to have had the British conservatives unlike the American Republicans yeah. actually get it and move and do it and actually it work in ways that have been but now of course then we have this now we have this This different agenda within that subculture of denying the differences between men and women altogether through the trans revolution which is yeah. another huge conflict within this in this world which is that is but i don't want to i don't want to digress no no no, no, no
1: but but it elevates it elevates the in some ways weirdly masculinity and femininity are getting overweighted in these debates rather than just recognized recognize for what they are, recognize the overlap, so we can all relax about them. In fact, Robert, I'll I'll take the risk of quoting Robert Bly from his book, Iron John. And I don't know if I put this in the book or not, but he had this great line where he said, surely we've arrived at a point where we can use the terms masculine and feminine without being afraid that some moral carpenter is going to come along and make boxes out of them into which to constrain us, or something like that. That's just a beautiful line. Exactly right, we don't want the box, we don't have to be made box. If you're a male, you have to be with a woman, for example, right? Or if you're a female, of course we don't want to be boxed in by them, but nor do we want them to be ignored. And right now, you've got this discourse where it seems like you've either got to be completely defined by it, and it's totally binary, and God forfend, there should be any difference between anybody transitioning. And the other side saying, there's no difference. and. Right. Whereas,
0: quite obviously, the only sane position is somewhere in between. Somewhere in between. Uh, And we seem unable to keep the understanding of this difference without it seeming to be constantly having to be forced into this structure of inferior or superior. Correct. As opposed to just different. different. And it's okay. In fact, it's wonderful, it's part of the joy of human life that men and women are different. It has created so much amazing culture. It is It is part of the tension of humanity. And why once people talk about the prison of gender, it doesn't have to be a prison. No. It can be this wonderful human playground. A playground, in which these, exactly. In which these conflicts, the gender conflicts, which you can go back, you can, you can, you can watch Benedict and Beatrice in Much Ado About Nothing. You can, you can see every Shakespeare play as this incredible dy- drama of men and women interacting and misunderstanding each other, but also being wonderfully complementary to one another in so many ways. You can't be complementary if you are identical
1: correct and and, and and you don't have to force them into roles either i had this friend of mine who used to play squash with them every saturday morning and it, he he i don't know if you know there's an ian McEwan novel called saturday which is about this these guys that play squash every saturday morning and one of them's having a fair with the other guy's wife and all this a brilliant novel actually but anyway so we used to joke about that he we used to play squash this guy is a republican trump voter absolutely to his fingernails F- came out of financial services but his wife was doing much better than him he was staying at home looking after the kids he was also very athletic he was coaching the kids basketball team etc and he he said to me once he said you know i keep a really good house i know i got the kids schedules i got everything i sorted i'm coaching i'm doing this he was incredibly agentic and energetic and and i just thought great like he's just he didn't feel the need to be any less quotes masculine in the way he was being in order to be a good in that case a stay-at-home dad but he was doing it his way on his terms and and i do fear that the overemphasis on some of these on some of these things is 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 making that harder right can can you be a trump voter and a stay-at-home dad in a very masculine way well sure as hell you should be able to and and the other way around
0: you come to some conclusions for some proposals I mean we often have these debates on this on the just casting and, and yeah, we never levels so what the hell do we do about this? Yeah. It's, it's hard. you have what do you run through like run yeah. through like two or three practical changes that you think might help might help men and boys realize their potential. Let's let's talk a bit. Let's let's talk a bit like that. Yes. We want the flourishing of yes. both sexes. Flourishing of both. We we want their flourishing. And quite clearly the culture and society we constructed is mitigating against the flourishing of men. Are there, is there anything we can do, because we can't really change, I don't think, the core economic structures underneath this, can't change the change of technology, the rise of all sorts of, there are some things we can't do, and we certainly don't want to get rid of the extraordinary success of women. It's not a zero-sum game. It it's should not, never be a zero-sum game. No. So
1: what can we positively do to well, help boys and men it, do better. It, like Assuming that we've accepted that there is a big problem here and that we have a cultural responsibility to help the boys and men who are suffering or struggling or are being dislocated, disoriented by recent travels, assuming we get to that point, and that we want real stuff. I'm talking to the left for that bit. And then we want actual real policy solutions that might work. I'm talking to the right at that point. And actually, I try to avoid in my book what Yasha Monk called the Chapter 11 problem, which is you write a book which contains ten chapters of long lament, it's like the book of lamentations. Everything has gone wrong. Usually it stru- usually has to be like a crisis you know, to sell the book. And then your editor or someone says, Well, you better have a few solutions at the end. So you knock together chapter eleven, which has a few things in it, so that you've got a few solutions. <laughs> it's usually universal pre-K or something similar. Yeah, that's all yeah, why not? Weird. Yes. Apprenticeships. Well, and actually everything. I've got apprenticeships in my So I deliberately don't do that. I spent a I mean I, also I'm like a policy walk. I'm a Brookings scholar, so like, I'd sort of feel a, a sort of bit of a role responsibility too. So I have a bunch of ideas. So in education, I think we should start boys in school a year later than girls, because they just, their brains mature a bit later. That's one biological difference on which there is no debate, that particularly in adolescence. So let's just to start them a year later. I have an Atlantic piece about that. So that they're developmentally a little bit closer to the girls. We should also have a massive recruitment drive of male teachers. 76% female and rising, almost no men in early years, one in 10 elementary school teachers. There are loads of elementary schools with no, te- no male teachers at all. I just discovered that in Northern Ireland, there isn't a single male nursery teacher. They just scoured the country for it. And in early years, there's no- my son works in early years education and faces some of the stigma that comes with that. But if you look at kindergarten teachers, there's 3% male. And to put that in context, there are twice as many women flying US military jets as a share of the occupation, as there are men. So as a share of the occupation of twice as many women flying warplanes as we do men teaching kindergarten, I'm gonna suggest that having more men teaching kindergarten is even more important than having women flying warplanes. So that's gonna take scholarships, male-only scholarships, subsidies to attract men, et cetera, all of which is gonna be controversial, but uh, if you're serious, you gotta do it. And then thirdly in education, more apprenticeships, more technical education. I want 1,000 new technical high schools Across the US because boys and men do seem to learn a bit better in a vocational way and right now they're being failed by the traditional education system in the workplace my main proposal is not to try and turn back the clock to bring back the factories of you know the ones I grew up with in Peterborough but it's to help men get into the professions of the future which include health education administration literacy a lot of these caring professions have just become so feminized that they they don't seem like a thing that men can do but there are good jobs in a lot of those sectors. And as long as we are careful about how we sell them, just as we got women into STEM, we now have to get men into what I call HEAL, Health, Education, Administration and Literacy. There are fewer men in those jobs today than there were in the past, but that's where the job growth is coming from. And then in the family, which in some ways I think is the the deepest problem, because I think it's at the level of culture as much as anything else, which is, what's the role of dads? Why do dads matter? And if they do matter, for reasons that I think they do, and we've already discussed this. What does that mean for public policy? For one thing, I think it means that men should get equal rights to paid leave as women. Dads should get as much right to paid leave as women do and to take it any time in their kid's life. My brother, for example, is a doctor up in Scotland. He's taking his parental leave and his kids are starting the equivalent of high school because he thinks that's when his boys, that's when he thinks his boys are going to benefit most from having dad around. And I think the evidence is on his side. And then a massive overhaul of the way we treat unmarried fathers. In every state in the US, A kid born to an unmarried mother, the presumption is full sole custody to the mum. The dad has to establish paternity and then go to court to have access. Not true for married fathers. And so unmarried fathers, this is partly why you see those numbers you quoted earlier, Andrew, is because right from the get-go, we send a message to fathers, especially if they're not married to the mum, and especially maybe if they're not doing that well economically, you don't count anymore. Thanks for showing up. Off you go. And so we have to reform the child support system, which does treat men like walking ATMs and doesn't give them fair access. So unfortunately, all that stuff has wrapped it's up. It's incredibly but- important.
0: You know, the, the ability for fathers who have divorced or separated from their wives or partners, or just who had a kid outside of marriage, and they're, and I've, I know this very, very personally, their kids are kept from them. They're they're treated by the system as a problem, not as a not as an, a solution to problems, or a source in of the, money sometimes, or, a a or money. Just, a yeah. money, just a source of money. Just a source of in money. In which they, of course, then resent that inevitably. Yeah. They will become more resentful because they're paying money without without access to yeah. their own children. Yeah. And this again, you you talk about this specifically, I think admirably that this is also for young African American men very very important
1: especially for them
0: yeah yeah if you look if you just look if you were to find a a, a social media in which testosterone is really out of control in the sense that it is not tempered it is young black men whose rates of violence are just exponentially higher than other groups in the society commit over 50 percent of the murders in the united states which is quite a staggering number and the idea that and then when i talked about the importance of fatherhood in the African-American community, I am immediately told that's bigotry, it's untrue. Black fathers are very, very, very involved in mm-hmm. their kids' lives, even if they're not living with them. Which I think, actually, there's data to show there that. Yes, they, they they, there is data yeah. to show that. However, the just being in the home with your kids is so crucial. And unless you address that question, the possibility, especially of black boys, to succeed in life is and Obama, yeah, he focused on this too, because he understood that that this does matter. and there's something there's something lost by black fathers and black sons by this terrible collapsed relationship. Yeah, um, that clearly, you can see in a very intense form is creating dysfunction well, uh, it leads
1: such, to criminalization it's it's such a difficult area of course and many of the trends you've just identified you know, so, uh, some of them have gotten better and some of them have gotten worse but i learned a lot from my i talk about my godson dwight who's a black a black man raised in baltimore and how he when he separated from his first wife just how hard he worked to stay in his kids lives and so on because that message of fatherhood mattering is important and i do think i do think it's important to enter this conversation from a from a position of pointing out what's working and what's good and what we can learn from right so a couple of things one is neighborhoods that have more black fathers in them engage black fathers in them the black boys in that neighborhood do better even if it's not their own father It's called Father Presence by the Chetty team who did that work. That's an incredibly important social science finding, right? That tells you that black dads matter in your neighborhood, even independent, whether it's your own dad. So social fathers, whatever you want to call them. So because that gets away from just within the nuclear family, what it's saying is we have to think about this in a community level too. So I think that's a hugely important point. And it's also true, as you said, that probably partly because a lot of these family formation difficulties long predated whites in the black community. And so black fathers who are not living with the mothers are more engaged with their kids. Because this idea that you only matter if you're a breadwinner actually was basically never possible to entertain within the black community, which is why black, you know, black women are more likely to be the breadwinner than black men. So this is the reality for a lot of black men anyway, and many of them are adjusting to that reality by trying to remain more directly in touch with their kids' lives, even when not in marriage. Not all, of course, and I don't wanna gloss it, but when you have an education system that currently means that one in four black boys have to repeat a grade before finishing high school, then you know that we're not serving black boys very well for a range of education and social and cultural reasons. And Obama said that in 2008. I think he was a fantastic role model of mature masculinity and- then um, he so will never be forgiven for it by the left. Some, but- uh, still isn't. Some, but I, honestly, my when I'm having these conversations with, with a lot of friends, including black moms, probably especially black moms, they really want black fathers to be doing better and black men to be doing better. And so I think if we can get past the sort of paralyzing fear <laughs> That we can't even talk about this stuff we'll find there's a huge appetite i particularly outside the elite policy making circles for an honest conversation about what's going on here that
0: that doesn't play whenever blame, i've a does place attempted does to put it not in a terms of blame but in terms of loss and potential for gain if we could figure this yeah. out you are still regarded as a white supremacist for even mentioning this topic which i think is part of the problem that that, that no one wants to sit here demonizing we're see, see, we're, we're seeking to identify a real problem that we know a fatherhood is in part a solution to. So
1: the question is simply how do we better create that? How do we encourage fatherhood? Correct. How do we it all it, for it, all. It, including it, it, including for white working class communities. There are yes. plenty of white working class. So I'm right now I'm talking to you from a place we spend a lot of time in a deep I'm deep in Appalachia right now. And the rates of marital breakdown, single parenthood, et cetera, in parts of Appalachia are just as high as in many black communities in cities too, and the problems I, are you know, just the, the same. If you
0: look, yes, it is. It's the same. It's, it's not same. about race. It's about correct. It's about family structure and and the way in which children can grow up and understand themselves. That's what it's about. And men, particularly, I mean, when the other the other thing about this is that if you look at, for example, opioid mm. overdoses, it's way disproportionately male. Yes, and yet we don't see that, and we and we're not talking about that aspect of the epidemic. Similarly, as you point out, we went through COVID, where I don't know how many how many essays, op-eds were about this is this is the women are taking the full brunt of this, blah 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 blah. And I'm not saying there aren't points there. There are. It, it, it's true, but the complete. Blackout of any notion that men are being disproportionately hit by this. Yes, that because they are physically different. I mean, this again, this absolute anathematization of any understanding of biology or the d- differences yeah. between the bodies of men and women. The fact that men will die earlier, that they are actually a more fragile sex in the se- sense that they, they are much more mm-hmm. likely to have accidental deaths. They're more likely to commit suicide. They're more actually to have accidents. I mean, they are. They are in some ways the more fragile sex. Certainly they uh, are. Uh, oh, uh, brittle, rather. They're strong,
1: but brittle. Yeah. And disease can really affect them disproportionately. Some, and and some drug addiction, the, too. Some of that's biological, some of it's social. But you're quite right, three times higher rates of deaths of despair among men, either from suicide, alcohol, or uh, opioid overdose. That, that's an Let's just think three about, about times that for higher. one second.
0: Three times higher among men yeah. than women. Three times The higher. despair. Deaths of despair, are three times and higher. Yeah. If, if, if we can't just open our eyes to that and think about it. And just try and get out of these structures that we're in, you know, in our head and see, yes, men are suffering, and we have a
1: serious social problem. That you, you should we should be able to look at numbers like that and go, there's a problem, and it looks very gendered, in exactly the same way that there are plenty of problems that run the other way. Like so by, for example, my wife is trying to raise money right now for a new business. And so I know that only two percent of venture capital money goes to female founders. I, I, I'm reminded of that on a on a on an even nightly basis. Andrew, Right. So, is that still a problem? You bet it is. But then I look at the deaths of despair thing, or I look at educational outcomes. I think that's a problem, and that's also got to be looked at as a kind of gender inequality that matters in in both directions. The COVID you case, can
0: you can take a million gender studies courses. You will never read about biological differences between men and women. But
1: well, the COVID case is a great example, I think, almost of everything uh, Everything we've talked about. Because what you've right. got is, first of all, an empirical difference, which I did some work on. But again, it yep. took some doing and I had to write about it you and know, try to pitch pieces about it. So I was like, hey, hey, I looked at the numbers. I'm like, wait, what? Wait, what? Middle aged men twice as likely to die as middle aged women in the US? Wait, what? Worldwide? There's a fifty percent bigger risk? Why is that? It's interesting. No one's talking about it. And you're quite right. A lot of our stuff about how bad COVID was for women. It turns out that employment rates have bounced back for women about the same as for for men now. But this thing about yeah, but they're more likely to die. Right? So, so and then okay, you could get people to agree that they were going to die. So then why was it? Toxic masculinity. They won't wear a mask, they won't get vaccinated, or pre existing conditions, they drink too much, they smoke too much, they're whatever. All untrue case rates were the same, even controlling for pre-existing conditions, there was a massive gender gap. It turned out that it was biology, that there are differences in ACE receptors. And it was true for previous viruses too, that men are just more biologically vulnerable to the virus. Now, what do you do with that fact? First of all, let's not bury it, because it might be good for men to know that, especially if you're trying to persuade them to get vaccinated middle-aged men especially right so it might be good to know maybe you should even think about working a bit harder to get men vaccinated because they are disproportionately vulnerable to the virus that seems to me to be a perfectly plausible way to think about that problem rather than it's not true if it's true it's their fault and i don't want to hear it right because that that didn't pass muster in the actual world so covid in a way was a beautiful example i think of some of the cultural problems we have of just having honest and empirical conversations.
0: And what, when people tell me, for example, and I don't want to do a hobby horse here, that, that I'm way too obsessed with elite campuses and elite colleges and what they're t- telling you, if elites are consistently educated into a worldview in which there are, in fact, biological differences don't exist, there aren't even differences between men and women at all, there are no biological distinctions in anything called ethnicity, that these, thi- these have to be abolished you, you end up not being able to understand the world you're living in, just understanding it. Yeah. The, and, and when you have an elite that has been trained to think any reference to biology is evil, evil, that it is clearly about oppressing, it's about sustaining patriarchy, it's about sustaining oppression, to talk about biology at all, then you're gonna have exactly this, a, a public policy discussion among the elite in which there are just massive blind spots correct and the blind spot about biology is becoming bigger and bigger in fact the more the more we've learned lots of interesting things over in the last 30 years about biology about men about evolution i mean we, why this can't all be just part of along with culture a richer more nuanced discussion i think is is a tragedy but i think it's partly a function of the way our elites are now being educated well, which is to that, be educated into thinking biology is actually a wicked Function of white supremacy as opposed yes. to a way of understanding that's, the world.
1: That's some. I mean, I almost think there's this. I find that when I've looked at the science in this area, and do I almost find there's two conversations going on? There's some scientists, typically in my view, not usually the strongest ones, who are the ones you get on the op-ed pages, saying that like, the most recent one was the maternal instinct was invented by men as a patriarchal. That was a piece in the New York Times, which was worth it because it generated the following tweet from Caitlin Flanagan. If that's true, it was one of their better inventions. And so, so any-, any- That is the, but there
0: you have it. You have the New York Times giving its imprimatur, like you have the Atlantic giving its imprimatur yeah. to this notion that you can abolish sex discrimination, sex segregation in sports, and women will do just as well because they're just being held back by socialization. And you have a Caitlin, Good old Caitlin Flanagan, who's been, you know, one of my personal yeah. heroes. Same. All she gets is a tweet, and then yeah, know, but, I mean, there was were tweeting for God's sake. What the fuck? But, we're just we're just
1: gadflies. We just it, it was, irritating. People. It was it was worth it for the tweet. <laughs> let's, let's be clear. But I do think, on the other hand. So what happens is that if you get one side that is sort of dramatically underweighting biology, saying it doesn't exist, it's socialized. First of all, you get this the next layer down of scientists. They just roll their eyes and get on with their work in the labs and publish right. an, and publish in obscure academic journals, and very often don't seek the limelight because. They don't wanna get into that. They don't wanna deal with it. So just quietly getting on with their work in their labs. They know this is all nonsense, but they also just like, it's all cultural air war stuff. There's almost like different layers of science now. There's sort of the quotes popular science, and you could always find a scientist or a politician to say something. Meanwhile, the right, partly in reaction, overweights biology. In, in a world where you have one side that's denying its existence altogether, the other side has to sort of make it everything, has to, masculinize it in a way we talked about it before is to try to be triumphant about these differences to to just insist that there can be no differences whatsoever and trans trans you know transgender is always wrong which is bonkers across human history and so on so they overassert biology and you get people like jordan peterson who i have some nice things to say about in the book too but who explain away the fact that there's only three percent of engineers are women by saying there are biological differences between men and women well there are but not so big as to explain only a 3% representation Jordan. Maybe a 30% representation, short of 50. And so you get one side that denies that there's any difference in the distributions, and the other side denying that they overlap. Whereas, of course, for most of these things, we have overlapping distributions, which which gives great plurality and diversity and joy to human existence in a liberal society. But neither side can really get their heads around it, and so both sides sound crazy on these issues there is there's, there's a, one really wonderful
0: thing because you the gender pay gap is a the mm. big con- controversy mm. yes and it exists why it exists it exists not to not a huge extent certainly not the way it used to but it's it still exists but but when you chart the graphs of just the two bell curves male and female yeah. what you see is in fact over the last 30 years an extraordinary congruence yes of male and female earnings not this persistent it's it's complicated it's bell curves there are distributions <laughs> there are shapes of distributions. Yes. it's 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 again somehow the human mind can't Kind of accept that nuance in a way. I hate to use the word bell curve, but bell curves are no, just a curve. Interesting just a, just th- statistical term that helps actually explain yeah. reality. That's yes. as opposed to this sort of because everything, every, all these groups that we're talking about. Massively overlap in so many ways. There's so much more in common than separates us. But it doesn't mean that what separates us is always irrelevant. It isn't. It can be really relevant. Correct. And I and I and I think the distinction between men and women is one of those things. I mean, maybe we're, you know, maybe as a society we're asymptotically coming to a balance here. We've done a great thing, it seems to me, in empowering women. And it's something that we should be prouder of in the West, of how we how we have created societies which are, historically speaking, incredibly better than they were. At the same time, we can't deny that there are ironies, there are costs, there are unintended consequences, there are things we have to adjust for, we can't, you know, yeah, this kind of debate.
1: I agree with all that. I know you we can... agree. Unfortunately, the gender I wish payer. we disagreed more. Well, some of some of the yeah, some of this I think is just you know, it's just a, again it's back to empirical. There is a gender pay gap. It's less than it was, but most importantly, the distributions really overlap now. So, actually, the female wage distribution—I mean, you have to squint pretty hard to see the difference between the female and male wage distribution. Meanwhile, it's stretched to the right. So, richer women and men are both doing much better. And back to our earlier conversation, they're marrying each other. So, household income is even. a real driver of income inequality is this this household effect. So. So I agree that you need to sort of understand these overlapping distributions. But the other thing is, and maybe this is a slightly more controversial thing to say, but the gender pay gap is largely a parenting gap. I think most, I think any economist that looked properly at this recognize that. There's this gender distribution of, of labor around having kids, especially young kids. So that then the question becomes, so it's not a myth, it's true, the pay gap. But the question, but it's not the result of direct discrimination by and large, it's a result of different patterns. And so then the question is, well, you see, that shouldn't be the end of the argument for the feminists, because then they can say, yeah, but why? Why is it that women are doing more of the care than men? Isn't that the result of structural sexism? Well, maybe that's a good conversation. Let's have that conversation. And then let's look at how people are making these decisions. But at a certain point, it looks as if there are some real preferences being expressed here. And. At a certain point you have to respect those preferences and i don't know what point that is but but i do think that it's a fool's errand to insist that until and unless everything is absolutely symmetrical then everything there still must be some socialization going on because that is to deny some of these natural differences that we've seen between men and women i think the problem is if we think that women are on average more likely to do more of the early years care which does seem to be the case and it does seem to be a largely a preference that doesn't mean that they should do the next 20 years like i i i know the women that I know who are angry with their husbands is not because he, he wasn't doing fair share when the kid was three months old it's because he's not making the dentist appointment when they're 13. like it takes I can speak from experience here it takes a long time to raise kids and you can absolutely make symmetrical contributions just in different ways and at different times and so that's where I think the problem occurs is that the left deny there could be any gender, any real differences in preferences about being with really little kids. And then the right say there are differences. Oh, and by the way, that applies throughout childhood. So they're both equally wrong about that.
0: Right. Fascinating. Thank you so much, Richard, for doing this. I, I, I it's, it's, a, it's, it's a very readable. Quick. I know you said it's long but I felt well, it, it felt long when I was writing it <laughs> I'm sure it did there's a lot of there's a lot of work in it too I'm not saying it's I understand what I'm saying there it's it's a deep book but it's it's it has also the the virtue of of concision and brevity in a way that is a relief when you read a lot of these books that go on forever and it's it's also written in language actually that is not academic that feels I can understand it and read it which is also. Incredibly important. I would love to have actually spent some time talking to you about John Stuart Mill uh-huh. But another time and I'm time.
1: <laughs> I'm gonna reissue my biography of him next year. So I would love. Oh, right. to, well,
0: maybe yeah. you come back. We're we'll talking about yes. Mills God, I, I want to do so more enough. podcasts in which we talk about individual human beings in which we we kind of talk about biographies more and lives and, uh, and people who are just fascinating because we tend to talk on the just has a lot of abstract ideas and arguments as opposed to uh, human life okay. but
1: and Mill had a fascinating life as well.
0: So yes, he would be a good sort of all people. Yeah, just a fascinating, fascinating example of a human being yeah. going through various remarkable transitions and
1: well, experiences. Your, your voice has held up really well,
0: Andrew. I hope we have it. It has. I think I'm getting it. better.
1: Good. I, 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 I hope not.
0: I, I would just have to keep quiet otherwise. But no, I'm very encouraged. This is a, the best <laughs> it's sounded since Labor Day, so I'm, I'm getting better, obviously. Thank you, Richard mm. of Boys and Men. Why the modern male is struggling, why it matters and what to do about it. Richard V Reeves. We have lots more to come on the DishCast in the coming month. We are packed full of rather challenging guests and I'm looking forward to a lot more conversations. If you enjoyed this and am relieved that I'm not selling you a lawnmower or your new mortgage or breaking for large sections of ads, it's because you are paying us not to do that. So if you haven't paid us not to do that, by all means, subscribe. Please do. Easy to get, not that expensive, and we'll keep this going for you. Until then, we will see you all next week. Thank you again, Richard. Thank you. Cheers.